0: There are wine candidates, candidates who appeal to upper upper class Democrats, and and there are beer candidates, uh, more populist Democratic candidates. And he calls uh, Buttigieg a craft beer candidate, which is interesting. Very millennial for a millennial millennial candidate.
1: Stay tuned. That's just part of what's ahead in our bonus content following this week's edition of In Focus, exploring the issues that matter most in Indiana. This is In Focus with Dan Speer. Good morning. The top 10 Democrats in the race for president take center stage. So who has the edge after the latest debate? And what will it mean for the race moving forward? Steve Nettis has more. All the top
2: candidates. On a crowded stage in Houston at the third presidential debate of the season, the Democratic White House hopefuls hoping for a headline moment.
3: I remember President Trump scoffed and said he'd like to see me making a deal with Xi Jinping. I'd like to see him making a deal with Xi Jinping.
0: He is treating our farmers and our workers like poker chips in one of his bankrupt casinos.
2: The 10 highest polling candidates faced off in reliably Republican territory Thursday night. Once again, all eyes were on Joe Biden as his rivals took shots at the former vice president, hoping to chip away at his lead.
3: Hey, Joe, instead of saying no, we can't, let's say yes, we can.
1: You said Your they would have to buy in. Are you forgetting what you said two minutes ago?
2: To be in- Senators Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders angling to win over the progressive vote. What
4: this is about is making sure that we have the... most efficient way possible to pay for health care for everyone in this country.
2: Medicare for all will save the average American substantial sums of money. With the first primary contest less than five months away, time is running out to catch the front runners.
5: Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We have systemic racism
3: that is eroding our nation. My father grew up on a peanut farm in Asia with no floor, and now his son is running for president.
2: As for Biden, his pitch was similar to the last two debates. He believes he is best positioned to take on President Trump.
3: We're the best
1: equipped nation in the world to take this on. It's no longer time to postpone. We should get moving. There's enormous, enormous opportunities once we get rid of Donald Trump.
2: I'm Steve Nannis reporting.
1: All right, we're here at the touch screen now with Importantville's Adam Wren and Abdul Hakeem Shabazz from IndiePolitics.org. All right, whose numbers do you think might go up based on what we saw in the debate, and, and who might be the next among this group to drop out?
0: Yeah, Dan, I think we could see Midwestern moderates like Amy Klobuchar and Pete Buttigieg uh, trend up from their performance in the debate. Well, I think Julian Castro might be the next person to drop
1: out. We'll see after all that back and forth there with uh, the former vice president, Abdul, what do you think? Uh,
5: I tend to agree with Adam. I think uh, Pete did well enough that he will sort of stay where he is. I really don't see Castro sticking around much longer after the comments he made about the vice president. Uh, Kamala Harris, I see her kind of maybe sort of trending downward over time. And I think Joe Biden stays, you know, Stay straight, but but a baseball tie goes to the runner.
1: Okay. We'll talk much more about it with our panel coming up this morning. Meantime, on Capitol Hill, Democrats still divided over the issue of impeachment. The House Judiciary Committee announcing they'll ramp up those investigations this coming week, while Speaker Pelosi still doesn't really want to talk about it. This amidst a lot of other headlines in Washington that I discussed this week with both of Indiana's senators, including the latest shakeup at the White House. National Security Advisor John Bolton is out. We asked Senators Todd Young and Mike Braun about that. We also asked them about the gun debate and the administration's tough new stance on vaping after several recent deaths. So many quick-moving developments at at the state and federal level. You've called for raising the legal age to 21. The administration now discussing the possibility of taking that a step further and banning flavored e-cigarettes altogether. Is that a move you support in light of the recent deaths that have occurred, including at least one here in Indiana?
6: It is. I support the president's uh, regulation of this. Look, when you're selling e-cigarette flavors like Fruit Loops and gummy bears and cotton candy and and, uh, bubble gum and all all sorts of other things, it's hard for me to believe that you you have a mass adult audience for this. And at a time when so many of our young people uh, are beginning to uh, obtain Nicotine products uh, which of course can scar them for their entire life. I think it was the right decision and it's a nice compliment to our legislation raising the uh, age of purchase up to 21. So we don't have people uh, that are age 18 passing on tobacco products to their 16 14 year old friends.
1: All right. So obviously this week, the gun debate is also in the news and there's been at some level a a comparison of sorts to this vaping issue. The organization March for Our Lives, for instance, posted these comments saying six people died from vaping and the president is banning them. A hundred people die from guns every day, as they note, 36,000 every year. Do they have a point there? And could we see a compromise emerge when it comes to more background checks for guns? Would you support that? Yeah,
6: the distinction you have to make, and it's just a matter of law, is uh, the Second Amendment uh, provides a constitutional protection, long recognized by the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, for gun ownership. That's what makes this such a difficult question. And so uh, we're trying to make sure that we address the root causes. Uh, We've already invested a lot of resources at the federal level in mental health, which is uh, how so many of these mass casualty events, occur and I'm prepared to invest more. Uh, We don't want to stigmatize mental health. We want to care for uh, it just as uh, we would any physical um, ailment but uh, that should be a real point of emphasis. Red flag laws, I'm very proud of the state of Indiana. Uh, We have the most robust, strongest red flag law in, in the entire country and that was a decision of our then governor and our state legislature so I know a number of state legislatures are considering that. I would even consider legislation that would provide uh, resources to other states that may be looking at the Indiana model. And then, of course, uh, background checks is one of the things that uh, has come up that will continue to be debated in committee. We need to know what the particulars look like there. We should make
7: sure, for the sake of maintaining those Second Amendment rights, that we do anything that we need to do to keep guns out of the hands of criminals and the mentally ill. Common sense gun legislation. Yes. Uh, let's start there and make sure it's focused on criminals and the mentally ill.
1: On this 9-11 anniversary week, there's obviously a lot of talk also about the NSA, uh, the National Security Advisors, departure and, and also the meetings with the Taliban that were scrapped reportedly amidst uh, some, some back and forth uh, between the president and some of, his, some of his closest advisors about how to handle that situation. Do you think it was the right move for the president to cancel that meeting? And, and do you agree with his uh, move to, to change uh, direction
7: with the national security advisor? So I think um, he would know better than anyone whether the John Bolton, the national Secu- uh, security advisor, was still going to be someone that was going to work into his long-term strategy. I think President Trump had it right from the get-go. We cannot be entangled in so many places across the world, uh, but we still need to be vigilant, like I said earlier. But I think in this case, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo, you know, probably was closer to being on the mark of what we need to do. Uh, I think President Trump did, in the moment, cancel that meeting with the Taliban. I see nothing wrong with that. But down the road, I think the solution is going to be to discuss and to talk about it. And we may still not get anywhere because these enemies are tough. They dig in for the long run.
6: I think the president of the United States did the right thing in stepping away from the table. Um, It it bears reminding uh, for those who weren't paying close attention to the Taliban negotiations that, um, look, we've been there for 18 years. And we need to get as many of our troops out of Afghanistan uh, as absolutely possible, while still making sure that that doesn't uh, remain a, uh, an area that will harbor terrorist activity. Um, and, and I've been pressing for this for years. But at the same time, you can't have the pr- party you're negotiating with murdering people while you're at the negotiating table in order to get more leverage, which is exactly what the Taliban did. So by stepping away the president sent a signal, just as he did with Kim Jong-un in North Korea, and just as he's done with with President Xi of China in negotiations, which is, if you engage in bad behavior while we're at the negotiating table, I'm going to walk away. Otherwise, you end up signing a bad deal like President Obama did with the nuclear uh, uh, agreement several years ago.
1: Are you surprised, though, that these talks were even being considered? And and also, how concerning is it to you that In less than three years, the president is now looking for his fourth national security advisor. No, I'm actually glad that
6: uh, these talks were occurring. Look, you you have to speak to friends and adversaries alike in order to maintain peace or to arrive at a a peaceful uh, situation. Ronald Reagan sat down with Mikhail Gorbachev of the Soviet Union, and they talked. Uh, And then they negotiated. So oftentimes you talk in order to uh, get the perspective of the other side. You see whether negotiation makes sense. And then that lays the foundation for a negotiation oftentimes. So the president's doing absolutely the right thing on that front. As for the national security advisor, um, they all serve at uh, the pleasure of the president of the United States. Clearly, he had had lost confidence in John Bolton. And um, that's his prerogative.
1: All right. Up next, could Governor Holcomb face a primary challenge in 2020? We'll talk about that with our panel and some new polling numbers on Indianapolis Mayor Joe Hogsett. What do they tell us about his bid for reelection next?
3: It's a competition. I get that. We come in, uh, you know, prepared to talk about why our vision is better than the others. But sometimes I think the debate framework uh, has candidates and certainly their advisors thinking that the only way to get anywhere is to just poke a hole in a fellow Democrat. And we got to make sure that we're competing over the best vision for America.
1: Mayor Pete Buttigieg in the spin room after Thursday night's debate. Let's talk about it now with our panel. Adam and Abdul are back, along with Democratic strategist Laura Beck and former GOP lawmaker Mike Murphy. Mike, I'll start with you. Your view from across the aisle on Thursday night's debate. Well, I
8: thought it was just a continuation of the Democratic circular firing squad They, they can continue to, to try to drive each other to the left, particularly when it comes to health care. I was impressed with Senator Klobuchar. She seems to be rational, somewhat centrist, and not willing to be dragged into the personal attacks the <laughs> cat she pointed out the inconsistencies, for example, of the uh, the Sanders uh, bill. She said he may have written it, but I actually
1: read it. I thought it was a great line. She did a great job. But does this really change the polling numbers or the dynamics of this race in any way? Or do you think well, it stays I, the same?
4: I don't know. I think that's a really good question to ask. Iowa feels so far away, but it actually is not that far away. Right. And I think people are starting to really tune in and watch. Um, Mayor Pete did a really good job. He stood head and shoulders above the rest because he would not engage in the sniping. Um, it it seemed, especially with Julian Castro, um, I think if anyone's going to be dropping out, it's probably going to be him pretty soon. What about that back and
1: forth between Castro and the former vice president? I'm today? really not sure what he was trying to prove apart from, <laughs> look, I'm a jerk,
5: and I'm, I'm behind, and i got to do something to save my fledgling campaign. Uh, it, it seemed really unprofessional. It seemed really tacky. And at the end of the day, I don't see what it gets you. You, know, you may not agree with Joe Biden, but he's an elder statesman of your party. You know, He was Barack Obama's Right-hand man and then to you know, make sort of snide comments and attack him, say, Did, do you remember what you just said? Do you remember? To me, it just seemed really tacky, and the, the sooner Mr. Castro leaves, the, probably the better yeah. for
1: the Democrats. What other moments uh, stood out to you, Adam?
0: Well, I just think the idea of moments uh, that pundits talk about uh, candidates needing to have particular moments in these debates is is short sighted, and I think particularly, you know, with Pete Buttig- Pete Buttigieg, people saying that he needed a moment last night, it's almost as if they want him to come out from behind the podium with a keyboard and start do- playing a <laughs> spoon cover. That would be um, something. <laughs> but um, you know, I thought uh, overall. Um, Really what we saw last night was the moderate candidates sort of striking back against mm. the progressives. You saw Mayor Pete uh, critique Warren and Sanders on their Medicare for All bill from a cost perspective.
1: And there was some reaction to this moment at the end of the debate last night with Mayor Pete Buttigieg when all the candidates were asked about professional setbacks. And Mayor Pete mentioned uh, Indiana Governor, former Indiana Governor Mike Pence in that final remark.
3: As uh, military officers serving under Don't Ask, Don't Tell and as an elected official in the state of Indiana, when Mike Pence was governor. At a certain point, when it came to professional setbacks, I had to wonder whether just acknowledging who I was was going to be the ultimate career-ending professional setback. And what I learned was that trust can be reciprocated, and that part of how you can win and deserve to win is to know what's worth more to you than winning. And I think that's what we need in the presidency right now. We have to know what we are about. Uh, Mike, what kind of a debate was this for Mayor Pete Buttigieg?
8: I think it was even. I, to speak to uh, Adam's point, I don't think he got any great moments, so to speak, or gotchas or anything like that. The LA Times had a fascinating column today on Buttigieg. They said this is probably his last debate. He continues to fall in the polls. There's one a say, month from now. I, yeah, I don't know if anyone thinks he's but getting they, out. Well, I'm, just I'm not telling you my yeah. opinion. I'm right. telling what the LA Times said. This is probably his last debate. And they said, but he is a pioneer. He will not be the last gay person, man or woman to run for president. And someday his legacy may be that, that he was the one who stepped out and, and had the courage to run. So it was, it was a mixed column, but I think that uh, he does deserve some credit for having a lot of guts.
1: We'll see where it goes from here, like we said. Another debate just, just around the corner in Columbus, yeah. Ohio, down yeah. the road. All right. Uh, We're also talking about the race for governor here this morning. 2020 around the corner, as we mentioned, and now another Republican throwing their hat into the race. Brian Roth just filed paperwork to create a committee. He is the president of a consulting and leadership development firm and a veteran, and the first Republican to announce plans to challenge Governor Eric Holcomb. The Indiana Republican Party also just announced plans to hold its 2020 convention in Indianapolis, delegates will nominate next year's Republican candidate for lieutenant governor and attorney general at the convention. And obviously, uh, that AG race will definitely be one to watch with all of the controversy surrounding Attorney General Curtis Hill.
0: That's right. I think advantage here is, uh, is to the state party, and, and the disadvantage goes to Hill because the delegates from downstate and upstate um, are going to have to stay in Indianapolis a little bit longer, and he, he might not have, have as much support in the hall.
5: I'm to respectfully disagree with the distinguished gentleman from Importantville. Uh, the thing to remember <laughs> about uh, these conventions, these are like the hardcore activists who show up. These are people who are more conservative on a lot of issues and usually where the, where the state is. And when you get outside our 465 political bubble, those people love. And you
1: think they're with you. Yeah, sir, the they,
5: they love Curtis Hill. Curtis Hill is, a rock, is more of a rock star. Outside of our bubble, the further you get away from Indianapolis. He
1: still has to survive the legal proceedings coming up uh, next month. What about the uh, the primary? Indiana is holding a primary. There's some states saying we're not holding them, uh, Republican primaries, next year. Indiana, uh, by statute, has to have one. But, of course, it's a big uphill climb for somebody like O'Brien Roth, who still has to get enough signatures to even get on the ballot. Yeah,
8: Roth is the Jim Wallace of 2012. You have to respect his military career. He's not just a veteran. He was a true leader in the military. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure he has a successful business. Jim Wallace was a a West Point grad, Harvard MBA, Army helicopter pilot, another honorable career. But they're just not going to get anywhere. I mean, uh, Holcomb is well over 60 percent across the state. He's known as a problem solver by Republicans and by Democrats. I don't know anybody who dislikes Eric Holcomb.
4: Well, I think though, when you when you talk about this, just as from a primary standpoint, no incumbent wants to have a primary because you have to spend your time and your energy and your money on a potential potential challenge. And so if Mr. Roth can indeed get on the ballot, um, it does become a distraction for that campaign because you want to spend all of your power on the general and focus on that, but you got to deal with the primary. And and I was- an incumbent governor has not had a primary challenge challengers since what? Governor Orr? Is that right? You're yeah, our historian. I think yeah. you're right, but I, I
8: can tell you, well, you know, Murray Clark, well, yeah, that's right, Mitch was not an incumbent at the time. But no, he was I, not. I will tell you that any incumbent office holder who fears a primary shouldn't be in office in the first place. It gives you a chance to get geared up, to test out your people, to get all your, all your machinery working, and uh, you spend a little bit of money, but you gain a lot of other benefits. That's, why you're, that's why
4: you're a good spendmaster. There you
1: go, right? There you go. We're also <laughs> talking about the race for mayor in. today. Adam and Abdul, this week you both reported on some internal polling numbers on Mayor Joe Hogstad showing 73 percent job approval overall and actually fairly even 47-49 with Republicans. What else stood out to you uh, from those numbers that uh, that were leaked?
0: The most uh, striking thing to me that stood out is uh, the mayor's uh, support in the most Republican areas um, of the electorate. Uh, I, I think this is really an uphill climb at this point for State Senator Jim Merritt. Abdul- well, The
5: one thing I thought was interesting was uh, in that meeting where the mayor's people uh, unveiled some of the, their polling data, the numbers that they didn't tell them was, was sort of the head-to-head straight matchup between him and Jim Merritt. Now, there's a school of thought that says they're, they're worried that they're so far ahead that people are like, well, this is a shoe-in, nobody will get out and work. But my thing is, if, if you're going to go and show your job approval rate and performance rating, just, just give the people the, the straight head-to-head matchup. Odds are... Their numbers matched what ours did because our numbers were actually pretty close with the, with the sample size and how we did our polling.
1: You did a poll recently. It was where, head-to-head, 50? Head 50, About 55-27. 55-27.
0: In the uh, meeting, the way that it was phrased uh, is that the mayor's people told uh, other candidates, uh, Democratic candidates, that the mayor was, quote, comfortably ahead, but they didn't share the actual numbers.
4: Those just simply this close to the election are just not, that is just not good news for Jim Merritt at this point in time. I mean, Mayor Hogshead has really been going into this. He's already up, I mean, he was running ads on the debate on network television um, he's got a lot of money he's doing really well and it just does not look like a race that Jim Merritt going to be able to overcome
8: well, Merritt just has not had the money to get his message out the fact is 14 soldiers have died in Afghanistan this year Americans 111 citizens of Indianapolis have been killed by gunfire your chances of being killed
1: in Indianapolis are almost nine times greater than they are in Afghanistan. Crime certainly has been an issue in the race this year. Hey, speaking of debates, we're going to be televising a live debate between the candidates for mayor coming up October 28th on Fox 59 in partnership with the West Side Chamber of Commerce. And you can submit a question for the candidates at fox59.com debate. Up next, a conversation about journalism and democracy with 60 Minutes correspondent Scott Pelley and see why he was here in the Hoosier State this past week. Coming up next. 60 Minutes correspondent Scott Pelley came to Indiana University this week, the former CBS Evening News anchor, taking part in the official launch of the new Arnold Center for Investigative Journalism at IU. And we spoke with him afterwards about journalism and democracy. Rarely in our history, I believe, has journalism been more important. There's no
6: democracy without journalism. And that's the message that I want to get through to all of these
1: students. Helly also has a new book out called Truth Worth Telling, which he signed copies of this week at IU. Dick around. We're back right after this.
0: All right, time for this week's winners and losers. Adam, I'll start with you. Republican senators Todd Young and Mike Braun for their thoughtful voice, uh, voices within their party this week. Uh, Young on uh, talking back to MBS about Khashoggi's murder, and Braun for his talk about gun control f- reform. We have them both here on the program this week. Abdul.
5: Two quick winners: uh, proponents of school choice, the Geo Foundation, returning to Indianapolis after been gone for a few years, opened up charter schools, opportunities for kids. And the lovely Mrs. Shabazz, who celebrated ten years of being married to me. If that's not a winner, I don't know <laughs> what, what is. What a winner! It's not
3: a
1: winner. It's
0: not
4: a winner. <laughs> <laughs> right. yeah. I mean, How do you follow that? I feel like Buttigieg after the debate the other night. Um, my winner was Lindsay Davis. She was one of the debate moderators. She did a great um, job. She, a great job. Yeah, she former was reporter former in reporter yep. from Indy. Yeah. Um, she was excellent. My loser was Trump for... Wanting to host the Taliban at Camp David the
8: week my, of 9 11. My losers Walgreens, completely hypocritical. They came out against gun or for gun control this week, and yet they continue to sell cigarettes, which kill 480,000 people a year here.
1: All right, we'll see you again next Sunday in Focus. Thanks for joining us. All right, let's talk more uh, about the Democratic debate now on our podcast. Mike Murphy, Laura Beck, Abdul Hakim Shabazz, Adam Wren. We were talking about former Vice President Joe Biden, his debate. Uh, Mike, how do you think he did? On I think
8: show? he. Is, I think he started off well. I think he, with no disrespect, started to hour, fade yeah. a little bit. I, I. I think I just wish he would sit down and look at the Reagan debate tapes because Reagan handled the age and the memory and all the things of so well. Ben, he was there. No. No, I was there. That's right. I'm just as old as Reagan. But. But. But the fact is that Reagan had a way of using humor to point. blunt. Personal attacks. Which the the biggest mistake you can make is engage in a counter personal attack or to get all mm. outraged like like Sanders does. Sure, every it's time.
5: like the line was because the question was you know it was but age be a factor. And you know your right. opponent bring for the president. Ronald Reagan said, "I would not let my opponent's youthful youthful, youthful in- inexperience,
8: yeah, right. exactly, yeah. which was which was that's one, that's probably the most memorable line." <laughs> but, but, but he did that all to go the there time in a
1: self deprecating way.
8: No, he's not because he's being a little bit too defensive. And I think he's more Reagan, about it. Reagan had the confidence. You know, and of course, he had the stage presence as an actor and everything else. He had the confidence in the stage presence to turn those things quickly, not in a canned way like Kamala Harris would be like. She had like four sound bites stuck in the back of her head. She had to time out one she used. He would do it naturally with a smile, and he just r- just ripped the guts out of the person
1: who was attacking him. I've
8: heard some comparisons.
1: Uh, Castro going after Biden there, somewhat similar to when Chris Christie went after Marco Rubio in the Republican debates uh, back in 2016. Mm-hmm. Biden's debate performance and what it means for the race moving forward.
4: Well, I just, I don't think those debates are actually a good platform for him. I was thinking about it last night, which I think I probably spent too much time thinking about the debate, which is sort of sad, but um, when I thought back to 2008, um, how great he was in those debates. I mean, remember when he got asked the question, you know, could you um, could you kind of hone it in a little bit? Could you not um, be so loquacious? And he said, yes. And then there was just like this <laughs> pause. you remember that? I mean, it was remember just so... remember the very first
1: moment of that debate. He yeah. comes out and tells Sarah Palin to call
2: him Joe. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So
4: he had some... He So he's lost that a little, and maybe that's because he's up with 10 other people, and he knows he's on top, and he's not coming from that fighting position. Um, it just it didn't seem like the best venue for him.
1: He he actually had a moment in the debate where he, he referred to himself as the vice president of the United States as if in current form. Mike Pence actually tweeted about there and said something about it. Had a rally this week saying, so "I right, am the I, current I, vice I, president." <laughs> of the and, that's,
5: and that is a challenge for somebody like a Biden with the trouble that he had maybe a couple of the first couple of debates. When you make any and then any other set of circumstances, you make a misstatement. It's sort of people right. just sort of blow it off. But because of the, some of the issues he had in the first two. Mm-hmm. They become more magnified. Like, how about you know the record player? You know, which, by the way, vinyl is actually making a comeback. It's making a comeback. I don't think people right. ought to be yeah. aware yeah. of that. That's
8: I, right. I blame the staff. I really do. I mean, you know, you you have a candidate. Everybody has weaknesses. Bidens are pretty well known. Everybody has them, and the staff has to work with the weaknesses and bolster the strengths and and this this uh, But the candidate whatever, also has to
4: be self-aware. <laughs> That's yeah. the other challenge you have, is that you can have the best staff in the world, but if you are not self-aware, if you are not self-accepting, and if you are not, and that's really hard. Sometimes it's really hard to say, yeah, you know what, doing a debate at 11 and, o'clock is probably not my And there were some
1: reports right. after the first debate that had leaked out, from presumably from his staff, saying that he wasn't listening to staff before yeah. that first debate. He just wanted to do his thing. Yeah. Uh, in terms of Mayor Pete Buttigieg or other candidates like uh, Amy Klobuchar, yeah. who we talked about, they just kind of hanging out here waiting to see if biden survives or if maybe they can Uh, eventually eat away at some of that uh, center-left support in the race?
0: I think that's an accurate analysis. Even before the debate began, uh, Buttigieg's staff were essentially saying, look, we don't see the debate as an opportunity to have some artificial moment that's going to be some polling sugar high for our candidate. Uh, They pointed to Kamala Harris, who had that moment in the first debate, and quickly, within a week, that that had dissipated. They see these debates as an opportunity, and Buttigieg, by the way, is already qualified on both metrics for the October debate, In Westerville, outside of Columbus. Otterbein Um, University. That's right. My cousin went there. Yeah. He's a graduate of Otterbein. Yeah. You know the That's right. Soccer Um, camp. camp. You know, Buttigieg (laughs) will will be in this contest through Iowa, barring some sort of um, scandal or uh, or flap. Um, But, you know, I think that. There is no advantage for him. He's playing the long game. There's no advantage for him to attack other candidates in a malicious way. We did see him for the first time draw uh, contrast with Sanders and Warren on their Medicare for All uh, program, which I thought was interesting because he hasn't done that before. Um, but he is, he is uh, biding his time uh, to a more consequential debate in the future.
1: President Trump also uh, went after Mayor Pete Buttigieg on Thursday, uh, speaking in Baltimore. Uh, talking about uh, poll numbers showing that, uh, that the mayor and, and President Trump in Texas were uh, pretty close. In fact, I think Buttigieg was even ahead in that, yeah. in that poll in Texas, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a poll that the president did not put much stock in. Well,
8: the president doesn't put much stock in anything that he hasn't created or made up in his own right, which I understand. Do you um, really think
1: Mayor Pete Buttigieg is ahead of, of the president in Texas? That it, that does seem like a. I, I
8: think there's maybe been a, a shift a stretch, in Texas from a hard, hard R to a more purplish, maybe. Yeah, yeah Texas,
5: Texas has been changing. If you look at the political culture, it's yeah. been changing yeah. for years. And also, the, the, the thing I, I stress is somebody who's done you know, a couple polls, they are not predictions, they are snapshots, snapshots and snapshots and And you don't know
8: what was going on in Texas the right. moment, those right. three exactly. days when the poll was here. You know, if I were Pete Buttigieg, I'd do everything he's doing right now. I'd build my my uh, my name ID, my all my quals and my goodwill and all that for the long term. And then if Iowa, if he doesn't come in the top three in Iowa, I would flip and run for governor.
4: You know, you have been talking about that. Will we see that happen? right now? Yeah. It's media money, message, and grassroots, and that's what he's doing. And and the fundraising piece is so incredibly important because. To to show that you are in this for the long game, as you said, you've got to have the money to compete, and that sends a message to the investor, that, not to the investor class, but the it well, sends the money right. to the donor yeah. class. Yeah. And so, and he's been raising like money. More, yeah. it's like you are funding a, it's like you're running a startup, and you have got to have the money, you've got to have that capital, but and that's what it's doing.
8: interesting you say that because there was a column in Politico just yesterday by a guy whose name I don't, Paul oh, Share, sure. is that his name? Oh, yeah. yeah, okay. And he said money does not equal votes, and he compared uh, Buttigieg to Paul Sangas who did so well in the money game early on. We but are like, so
4: going back.
8: When it oh, out, I, I'm just telling you, when it comes back and then it comes back. I have back. vague recollections of this I Paul Songhus. He's no longer <laughs> with us, by yeah. the way. Yeah. Right, it's, I, it's know, the great, I know, I know. Paul Songus did so well in the money game and was impressing everybody. He was a very articulate guy. And all of a sudden he gets to, he actually maybe won New Hampshire, if I remember well. Yep. or governor of Arkansas there. comes mm-hmm.
1: along. And then
8: he yeah. comes along and he gets to South Carolina and the, the floor falls out. And so we don't know when the floor will fall out or if it will fall out with Buttigieg but the bottom line is, money does not equal
1: votes.
0: Yeah, two quick points. Um, I think, you know, to Laura's point, um, the Buttigieg campaign actually has taken to calling their donors um, investors. Yeah. They, they they don't have a, a donor director, they have an investor director. Right. And um, and I, Mike, I, I thought I read that um, column and I thought it was a really thoughtful piece. And the author, Bill Schur, sort of raises this theory that there are wine candidates, candidates who yeah. appeal to upper, upper class wine Democrats, and cheese crowd. Yeah. And, and there are beer candidates, uh, more populist Democratic candidates, and he calls uh, Buttigieg a craft beer candidate, which is interesting. Very not, millennial. For on a two, millennial on, candidate. On two yeah. months, yeah. Right. Buttigieg actually has craft beer in his, his refrigerator at home. What does he like to drink? Do you know um, he, I know what he drinks? Bell's <laughs> Too Hardy. Bell's <laughs> Too Hardy oh, is go, right. his favorite. Uh, it's a good craft strong beer. Bear. That's um, right. Um, but it's fascinating because I, I think that really the central question that we're going to find an answer to over the next month with Buttigieg is, can he close that gap between leading the field in fundraisers and um, being in the middle of the pack in the field when it comes to actual voters? If he cannot close that gap in the next month or two, I, I really think that will tell us a lot that we don't know right now about the state of this campaign.
8: And, and, and Adam, just remind me of, of the other central point that Cher made was, that the beer candidates almost always beat the wine candidates in the Democratic Party.
1: Interesting, and I was always
8: very crucial.
1: Obviously, that's so why I just prefer the state. scotch and scotch you're candidates. You're scotch candidates. candidates. Yeah, <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> uh, Anything else stand Man, out to now. you from the uh, the week that was in politics uh, here in Indiana or around the country? Well, you've got to
8: talk about the John Bolton firing yeah. or his attempt to resign and you're not resigning. I you can't resign. I fired you. Fire, you Whatever. You know, I actually will give Trump some kudos for that, because I think John Bolton is one of the two, was one of the two most dangerous people in the administration. He was driving us
4: toward
8: toward a war, and he's driven us toward wars before, Mm -hmm. and I think that, to Trump's credit, he's trying to solve all this mess without going to war. Is he doing things exactly the way I would? No, but I'm not the president. He is and and the other really dangerous person made the most dangerous person in the administration is Stephen miller
5: he's just an outright racist but, but the other thing too i think that and That's i've never been a big mike
4: and i agree and i yeah. completely agree with him <laughs> about all counts.
5: Yeah, and i've never been a big john Bolton fan from all the days in the Iraq and... Michael
0: uh, Bolton
4: though. Yeah, yeah Michael right? Bolton. Trust, trust me, I would
5: much rather listen to <laughs> Michael, Michael Bolton. There was a bunch of I right? That's right. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the thing is though, that it, it, to me it just seemed a bit ironic that all this would happen the week of 9-11. Yeah.
1: That you would invite the, the,
5: the Taliban for, for peace talks at Camp David and John Bolton gets fired and you know, when all our minds to sort to of return and refocus on you know, issues of, of national security and the fact that the, the college students that I teach in class today almost basically no memory of Of 9-11. But but
4: let's let's think about this, though, too, in the larger context. You've got, you had Trump, who was floating bringing the Taliban to Camp David the week of 9-11, right? You've got um, the Chenies who were clearly very against that, tweeting that they were against that. And, and, And then you also look at what's going on in England right now, right? So there has been no Opposition from the Republican Party um, to Donald Trump pretty much throughout his entire presidency. And so those fissures this week really felt like they were starting a little bit with the Cheneys, um, John Bolton. Um, but then you also look at England and what's happening in England, where Boris Johnson is kind Of a man alone because his own party is abandoning him, and it's just been really fascinating to look at it from that broader perspective. Very similar and similar scenarios, and
1: will, I just want to hear my court for order. And will <laughs> I know, and, and or
4: quote he's thinking of a Churchill quote right now, and, and will the Republican he probably doesn't even have to think of it, he's just got it
5: right there. And by but, the way, one of the people that uh, but
4: will Republicans start yeah. breaking with him?
5: And one of the one of the people that uh, Boris Johnson actually tried to fire from the from the I want to say the Tory party was actually the grandson of yeah, Winston, uh, Winston Churchill. Yeah. Yeah. You know, who, was, wow. who was Boris Johnson's hero? It's like, dude. So, so I that, might not be reading the, the, political the, articles, but
8: the, the, the last to Republican to really make a serious attempt to rein Trump in was Paul Ryan, and he realized he couldn't yeah. do it. and He quit. I
4: know.
8: Yeah. Um, it's it's sad. There's there you know this the the Congress has you know has forgotten that we're supposed to have a set of checks and balances. Every once in a while, you get a Todd Young or a Jim Banks or somebody that will stand up to the president, but it's it's episodic. Yeah. It's, it's not consistent.
2: Very true.
8: And it's carefully.
4: Bring back Carefully, yeah. Yeah. Too. Yeah. 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 It's
5: um, strategic.
1: All I right. I
4: think we need to bring back
2: John.
1: Banner. <laughs> we'll we'll, uh, we'll we'll talk more next week. Thank you all to our panel. Thanks. And Thank one day we'll tell you all the story behind the scenes of uh, f- our drawing on the touch screen. So <laughs> <that's really laughs> our, you just don't even want to. <laughs> a few tries on that. We'll get it. We'll get it. That's all right. right. Thanks, guys. We'll see you next week.